Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And we are taking our turn now to look at what's happening in our own community. Two of the biggest stories I think we face here uh, in Baltimore that we've been watching very closely. Um, uh, are, some people may seem disconnected, but for me, they are very connected. Uh, and one is the crisis our schools are facing with this budget deficit. And when you do the studies and look at it and see the numbers that have been crunched by the ACLU and others, uh, that this is not a problem of mismanagement, but that in fact, despite what the governor says about keeping up education funding, that education funding has actually dwindled in real numbers uh, since uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, and Baltimore City is facing that. Plus, we keep forgetting that part of this budget deficit has to do with the fact that part of this budget, part of the money for the city schools is going to pay for the construction costs of this money that people thought at first were coming from the state. And the trick bag we were all put in many years ago voted, when people voted for casinos thinking that money meant more money for schools when in fact it did not mean more money for schools. It just meant that some of that money would go into education to shore up the budget that already exists. So well, we have a crisis where you're seeing schools in our community uh, that could lose from a million dollars each to hundreds of thousands of dollars each, teachers being laid off, class sizes rising, and our children in this city face very dire conditions uh, and need more help, not less, as do other parts of the state. We had a conversation yesterday. One of our guests from Montgomery County made it clear they are the largest school system in the state, the fastest growing by 3,000 students a year. The majority of those young people coming into the school system are, have English as a second language. They also are underfunded, even though they put a lot of money into their schools. And where do we, should Baltimore put more money into schools? We were waiting for the mayor to make an announcement. The announcement didn't come uh, when she was in um, Annapolis. Uh, she said she was making an announcement. Where's that money going to come from? Should it come from the police budget, which leads to the next part of what's facing Baltimore, which is a huge rise in shootings, violence, carjackings in our city. Uh, and we do not know how to put a handle on this. We do not know how to create a criminal, a, a social justice system that actually works for this community, that saves lives, uh, that builds community, uh, and does things in a different way. How does that happen? To me, these two things are connected. Young people wouldn't be out in the streets carjacking if they were in school doing the work they need to be doing. So where do we go? So we have our three guests here in the studio. Kim Chu Hart joins us once again, longtime citizen activist who's at every city meeting you can imagine every day of the week, uh, letting her voice be heard, and also was former candidate uh, for Baltimore City Council president with no funds, and we get a lot of votes with no money riding the buses. And Kim, good to have you back in the studio. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Lawrence Grand Prix is in the house. He's assist assistant director of research and public policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Lawrence, good to have you back in the house. Thanks for having me. Luke Broadwater is here once again, reporter for the Baltimore Sun who focuses on local and state politics. Luke, good to see you. Good morning. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us by email, talk at steinershow.org. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner, but do join us with your thoughts. So I did connect these two subjects. People think are dis disparate. I'm not so sure they are. I do deeply think they're connected. And the question is, if they're connected... How do you create a holistic discussion that changes the way we look at these issues and changes the way we address them? I mean, look, let me take it as a journalistic look. Let me let you start with you, Luke, and then go sure. around the room. Sure. Well, I think you're right. These are the two biggest challenges pre uh, uh, presented to the new mayor, Catherine Pugh. Um, crime is out of control right now. Murders are up. Shootings are up. Carjackings are up. Robberies are up. It really is a very big problem she has to tackle. At the same time, we have this historic uh, budget deficit, $130 million, and the potential impact on the schools is potentially devastating. We're talking about 1,000 layoffs, 80 per, uh, I think 80% or so at the school level. Um, we're talking about class sizes increasing by, by potentially 10 students a class. And then you look at the ramifications of that. What does that do? That potentially drives out more middle-class families to the counties. That diminishes the city's tax base. Um, and it's just, it's just a, it potentially is a downward spiral. So you have these two very big problems. And you're right. They are connected um, both in the way that um, many believe if you spend more money on schools, you have to spend less on police on the back end. But they also compete for funds. So um, And the city isn't 
um, flush with cash, right? The city is facing its own $20 million budget shortfall for the next year. Um, so I think we're going to have a lot of really hard and tough discussions as we go forward with this budget. And I think you're going to see some proposals to perhaps cut from the police department and give more to the schools. And I think you're going to see some backlash on that as well because of the high crime right now. Uh, many uh, people will look at that as something that's going to hurt the crime fight. I think there may be arguments against that as well. So the, we're, we're, we're heading into a really challenging time here for city government. Fortunately, Kim Truhart to, to, to wax forth next. It's true, though, that, that the Baltimore City Police have never had a real audit. We don't know, really know how the money is being spent inside the police department. <laughs> right. Well, they, right? They, had, they did have a financial audit last year as part of the um, voter-mandated audits, but many people felt that that wasn't substantive enough. So, um, and I think you do bring a, a good point. We've seen this police budget increase pretty steadily over 10 years now. It goes up every year. And yet we hear at the same time police say, we have too few officers. We can't man our patrols. We can't, um, and, and citizens complain too. I call the police. They don't respond very quickly. Um, so there's something going on where there's this disconnect between the rise in funding and the actual services people are seeing. Um, I think that some are now pointing to the union contract and this schedule, which gives police four days on, three days off, as maybe that needs to be uh, renegotiated to get more uh, more boots on the street, so to speak. Kim Schuhart. Well, we know that the competition for revenue between the schools and the police is a losing proposition for the schools. So there's no competition. The police have won out hands down. Um, a $480 million annual budget for the police department, whereas the city is only contributing $256 million, um, almost double to police over schools. Um, the, the fact that we claim that we are doing outcome-based budgeting in Baltimore City, the outcomes of the police department are horrific. And they have been for the, the entire time that I've been back home. They've not produced the outcomes that we would expect, but yet we continue to invest more and more in the police and achieving the, the worst outcomes imaginable. We have the eighth largest police department in Manning and revenue in the nation, the eighth largest. By population, we're only the 26th largest city. So I don't understand why we think we need to have the eighth largest police department. So, okay, okay I'm sorry for you were saying, I'll wait. I'm no, sorry. Well, well my, my point to, to what you said is we need to cut the police budget. We need to reinvest that money in our children, give them things that will um, – allow them not to be out on the streets, not to engage in um, disruptive behavior, give them productive, engaging things to do. And I think we will see crime uh, reduced. Lawrence Grand Prix, your take. I think that these issues are absolutely related, and I want to kind of take a different approach to the issue. Um, people talk a lot about money. I think we have to talk about some things that come with prior questions. These institutions seem to be doing what they're setting out to do. So we need to look fundamentally at the structure of these organizations. We don't. We call our budget for policing public safety. We do not have a public safety system in the city. We have a crime and we have a punishment system. After the crime is committed, we go find the person and we punish them. We don't have a system that prevents future criminality. We don't have a system that gives people constructive alternatives to criminality. We don't have a system that deals with the substance abuse issues that produce criminality. Similarly, we don't have an education system in the city. We have a testing system. We have a social control system for young people. I wouldn't call that education for the vast majority of young people in this town. We have to fundamentally rethink how we conceptualize these ideas of policing and education. I think on both parts, the critical element that's missing is culture. And we have a system of white supremacy that continues to demonize a substantive, even uh, pragmatic interpretation of what culture can do in both criminal justice and education. We see 
culturally centered schooling producing great results when it's invested in, when it has mechanisms of accountability to community. But that's not the dominant system that we have here. We have charter schools that are run predominantly by folks not from community, not accountable to community, and we have traditional schools which similarly produce a curriculum. We don't talk about curriculum. We talk about the buildings. We don't talk about the curriculum that's not relevant to students' lives. Similarly, when you look at culturally centered interventions in the criminality, you have folks doing studies that talk about when you engage folks into a theory of culture, specifically African-centered people, rates of recidivism can drop as much as 30%. Nothing we can invest in can produce that level of change. But these are things that are entirely off the table because we have a system that does not conceptualize the importance of fundamentally changing and making relevant this education, criminal justice, and a comprehensive thinking about how we live in our society. We have normalized systems of education and policing that use a lot of money, produce terrible results, and we constantly have this battle. How do we get them more money? How do we get them more money? And for a lot of folks, it feels like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. But we have folks who have constructive solutions, whether it be culturally centered schooling, whether it be things like safe streets. But every time these interventions get produced, because of the system of white supremacy, if one thing goes wrong, if one safe streets person continues to sell drugs, if one culturally centered educator gets caught committing a crime, that's used to invalidate the entire theory of change, as opposed to reinvesting in creating accountability for new systems for addressing these problems. Folks, that's a product of Baltimore City Public Schools. Mm. Isn't that amazing? I love his mind. And real quickly, <laughs> I was a product of Baltimore City Public Schools before Thornton kicked in. So theoretically, I graduated high school in 03. My public schools was the most underfunded public schools, like ever. It's not just a question of money. It's a question of the system and making education relevant to people's lives. I was fortunate to be part of a community of debate where we kind of succeeded despite the curriculum of debate we were given, and we made it relevant for ourselves against the administrators and against the teachers who were telling us to do it the traditional way. And this is what we need. We need to create spaces where folks from community, folks who have understanding of culture, folks who have a relationship to where people need, are given the resources and invested in systemically, legitimately, to build capacity, produce a legitimate alternative to the institutions we have now. I'm just not very interested in creating fiscal solvency for systems that I think are fundamentally broken. So let's kind of rest with this. These are very tough issues that we, we, I've raised, and there are kind of responses here that are very tough to wrestle around. So let's talk about them. And, folks, I want you to join us, 410-319-8888. Uh, we see the crisis the city is in, uh, and I would say the state is in, and education systems are in. What are your solutions to that? Uh, where do you think, where do you begin uh, with the police department, how does that change? Where do you begin with our school system? How does that change? 410-319-8888. You can email us at talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you can also tweet us at Mark Steiner. But what are your what, what are your solutions? Let's say, for argument's sake, we have this debate in the, over where this budget goes in Baltimore City. And, and we look at our schools. And we also look at where we're spending money on police. Um, and I've seen some of the studies that show how things can change if you invest Different, in a different way in different cities, though I've not seen any depth to a lot of those because they're in such small numbers. So I'm saying, I mean, this, 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 the studies are about projects and places in that, that affect fewer people than, than, than they do the larger population. So the question is, how do we get to a place that actually takes care of our kids? So is it a problem? And I'd be interested to hear some police talk about this. Let's stay with the police for a moment, and then we'll go to right to education and, and how you restructure that. If you talk to, it would be interesting to hear some police who actually could talk on the record about if they could, if they could do their job more effectively with the police that they have and staff, where they're placed as opposed to um, having all these plain close squads just jump into communities and bust people but you actually have people in the community that know the community and are there. But do most of the frontline work, let's say, outside the police department, something Lawrence Grand Prix was alluding to, whether it's safe streets, or as I keep saying, safe streets, plus you take the women from out for justice and power inside and other institutions that, could be, that can be part of that uh, community health team that actually begins to intervene in things and before they get to that point, and if you bring the police in when you really do need <coughs> intervention in criminality, and, and um, well, let me stop there. Lawrence brought up a great point. 
um, around the issue of the budget of the police department right now has, I think, 13 budget objects. Not one of those 13 objects is crime prevention. And, you know, I've been asking for a couple of years now that they need to, to identify a crime prevention line in their budget, show us how they're engaging. They being the police? The police department or, or the finance department, you know, um, Mr. Klein, the budget director. Um, the, the, to me, that's an important aspect of what we want the police to do. And, you know, Lawrence articulated it very well. They, they don't engage in crime prevention. You don't see that very much. Um, they, they, they talk about this new concept of community policing, um, and, and I don't see any cops in my neighborhood walking around engaging. Um, I see them downtown. I see them directing traffic. Um, you know, come on, give me a break. So let me open the phone so I see the one if you'd want to leap in here. Uh, well, I mean, I, I always <clears throat> go back to this this idea that economics has has uh, a, a role in both of these problems, um, and when you look at um, just some of the studies that have come out recently that that told us what we already know about the disconnect between um, white and black wealth in Baltimore. When you look at white-owned businesses, you see that the average wealth is $800,000. And you look at black-owned businesses in Baltimore, and the average wealth is only $40,000. And then you see that the city government um, gets a lot of, has a lot of contracts to give out and has um, the BDC has a lot of contracts to give out. And those um, are not, uh, are overwhelmingly also going to the white-owned businesses. And I'm not trying to say everything is, is about race or should be awarded based on race, but when you look at um, some of, when you look at how the government has structurally advantaged one race over another, um, then you look at now what is government's role now to try to, um, fix some of those problems. And I think if you see economic uplift, um, you're going to see less crime and hopefully a better performance in schools as well. And let me open the phones here. I do want to get into the question of also that what, what you allude to, which is the poverty in the city, which is when you have a city where the majority of people live in poverty, and we do, and we just don't want to recognize that or deal with that reality. Um, in, in a city that is 60%, 63% black, 30% white, uh, most of the rest of the folks in the town being Latinos, uh, but you you have the majority of people living in the city living in, in poverty, poverty. Mm -hmm. and where does that and and how do we attack that? Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let's go in the callers in a row. You came in. Let's see who came in first. Brian, you're on the air. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Thank Brian. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, first off, the, the young man that was speaking, I sort of came onto the show a little bit late. That's okay. Um, I'm about to head down to Annapolis now to, to um, check out the hearing on uh, the Public Charter School Act of 2017, which is which is one of the issues that we really have to have to look at. But the young man who was speaking Lawrence Grand Prix. about culturally responsive pedagogy is is a key factor of, of what the issues are that we have in school and, and with the school system. And this this uh, Charter School Act. Is going to is going if if it's a, if it's passed, it's going to open the door to more of the same. It will allow more people to come in, particularly those who are who are interested in making a profit off of our, our students and our children, come in and, and drain the public school system and just make make profit for for those who are, are invested in in these uh, for profit charter charter schools. So that's that's that's, that's one level. But the, the young man hit, hit the nail right on the head. Another issue that, that, we're, that we're facing is that we can, that we can address is this, the, the Baltimore City Public School Board is about to uh, update its, its policy on, on discipline. Uh, and, and one of the things that could go a long way in, in helping along with that culturally responsive pedagogy piece is restorative practices. I know the Teachers Democracy Project and others are working very diligently to have restorative practices uh, put into and, and actually turn the school system into a school system that operates on restorative practices when it comes to discipline issues as opposed to punishment. As far as the work that we do, I'm, I'm the founder and president of the William Watkins Educational Institute. Uh, we train teachers in culturally responsive pedagogy, and we have an innovative school model called Third Millennium Schools that 
go that incorporates culturally responsive pedagogy as well as restorative practices into the educational environment, which is which is it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to cure all the issues that, that public schools face. But if if anybody tells you that there is a silver bullet that will that will cure them, run away from them. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but that's that's just that's just my, my what I'd, I'd like to share to the to the to add to the to the conversation. Well, you, but the young man who spoke earlier graduated from uh, high school in 2003. He hit the nail right on the head. We have to relate. We we have to look at the the students. We have to look at the the, the 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 people that we're working with on a daily basis, and we have to connect with them. We have to have relationships with them based on a curriculum that is meaningful and relevant to them and their lives. And we have to accept them right. and understand these young people as as they are. That's, that's, that's all I have. To well, say. well, Brian, don't hang up just yet because what I'd like you to do is just hold on so the producers can pick up the line and get your contact information. Um, so you can join us on the air to talk about the work you all are doing. We'd like to hear a great deal more about that. So uh, hold on. We're going to get your contact information, email and phone, and we'll get you on with us. So, Lawrence, let me – he called your name out three times. Without, mm-hmm. Let me let you um, – I appreciate that. And I think that this is uh, something that people talk about – starting to talk about a lot. And I think it's kind of seen as an accoutrement, kind of a, a garnish to more traditional – theories of school reform. I I think that that's the problem. And I think part of that reason is because the way we come to evaluate and understand, quote unquote, what works. If you think about it, this idea of evidence-based practices and the idea of the way evidence-based is traditionally defined, longitudinal studies over years of large numbers of people, it's actually an incredibly conservative framework for what's supposed to be a liberal progressive movement. Someone have needs to have already done it, have already done it to scale, have already done the metrics, have had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for some egghead from a university to tell us what we probably already know. If you have a good relationship with kids, they learn better, right? So, but we have this whole industry designed to see quote-unquote objective metrics of what works, and I think these really just normalize oppression. And the example I want to use is that when we talk about successful turnarounds, we normally talk about the metrics we use for what is successful is within a few years, they've increased test scores. Some of these things take time. Some of these things take years and years and years, take infrastructure, take deep pockets of pipelines of people being trained in culturally predictive pedagogy. And if the tests themselves are problematic, getting the test scores up may not in themselves be true success. But this is the metric we normalize because of this really silly, I think, interpretation of evidence-based practice. That does not mean evidence and statistics are bad. That means that our interpretation of those reflect the problems of dominant society. So, so, so let me just answer this quick question before we take a break. So I, I like to just break that down in much simpler terms for people. What the hell does that mean? I mean, what does it mean that... Uh, I mean, I understand what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I, I call it a, a yeah. failure, some people would call success. Like, for example, I got really high test scores in school. I mean, I was depressed. I hated my school. I hated everything. But I scored really well on tests, so I was a huge success. I had no idea how to reintegrate back into my community because what I was learning is that my community was inferior because they didn't read the books that I read in school because they didn't do the type of math I learned in school. So personally, I was a failure. On paper, I was a success. And that's just a very personal example of what I think the conundrum is, is that we're the, we want to produce these success stories of short-term increased test scores, but the mechanisms of teaching, the assimilate and regurgitate banking model of education, many of those things produce long-term systemic failure, but we don't care as long as the I mean, school looks good on paper. I mean, I, I, I do, we'll come back to have a short break and come right back, but I, mean, I, because I, I, mean, I agree that, the, that our approach, this evidence-based approach we use a lot, is flawed. Uh, just a second. It's flawed, but that, um, the, the, but but that we have to talk about what replaces that, and how do you replace it, and what do you do for our, our kids. Right. Um, you know, I mean, the, the crime maybe is that the other kids in school didn't understand the Matthew did, didn't understand the books that you read, and there's no bridge to 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 blend those so that people have a culturally culturally sensitive education, and also are learning. In the, in, a, in the way that makes them allows them to survive in this world that we that we're faced with, how do we get there? Is the question. I'm going to go right back to all that. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. We are talking about the intersection of the 
of uh, what we face in our city with um, uh, the deep poverty, the crime that's soaring, school budgets in crisis, how they're connected, what we do about it, trying to have conversations that don't necessarily fit directly into the establishment kind of conversations. They may come from the outside, but how do you change the inside from the outside to make it work for everybody, what does that look like? Uh, we're here, we heard, heard Lawrence Grand Prix before we went to break, Assistant Director of Research and Public Policy for the Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Uh, Kim Truhart, longtime activist, uh, who is, um, is, has been a voice in community meetings and political meetings around the city. Luke Broadwater, reporter for the Baltimore Sun, focusing on local and state politics, 410-319-8888. Let's get another caller in here. We'll jump right back to our guests. Uh, Terrence, on line three, you're on the air. Welcome. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I just wanted to make a quick point, and I, I, I agree with everything um, the young man, I believe, is Lawrence, his name is Lawrence, was saying. And um, I know a fair amount of teachers, and one of the things that really frustrates them is this standardized approach to teaching. Um, Lawrence made the point earlier that, um, I believe he made the point earlier, um, I came in a little bit late, that kids aren't really being taught content. They're being taught to pass a test which is standardized. And that kind of handcuffs our teachers a lot um, in regards to education. And to have their budgets based on that, I think, is a great, you know, political injustice, so to speak. And I believe what we need to do is return, you know, the power to the teachers, the principals, you know, people in those positions to create the standard for education because they know the kids and they work with those kids day to day. And I think we would get much more results if we return that power to them versus having the state dictate what should be taught and basing, you know, finances on that point. Uh, so that's just the point that I wanted to make on that. I, I think it's an important point. I mean, I remember the, 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 this, this, this charter school uh, movement um, kind of uh, gained strength. In the beginning of the discussion that we started actually in the late 1970s when we were organizing for the Baltimore Teachers Union when I was in the school system was just that, which was... The teachers and students, the teachers and principals should manage the school, should run the school. I don't mean worrying about fixing the roof, which is what we do now. I'm talking about the pedagogy. Let the system fix the roof. That's their job. Let the teachers teach. That's their job. And let the principal be the pedagogic leader. That's his or her job. So, I mean, so there has to be that kind of a restructuring that's not necessarily charter, but gives people a chance to manage their schools and manage education. Exactly. Yeah, and and the debate that's currently going on right now with the school budget is around small schools, schools that have populations under three hundred. Which what people want to say is a problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, they got to close is what they're telling right. us. Whereas that would be the environment where you could nurture the minds of our children in smaller class settings with unique skilled set teachers, instructors. Um, the learning would, would would be phenomenal in those kinds of environments, but we are, are shutting them down. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, this whole thing is about investing in our children. And if we are still comparing the police to the school system, most recently the police bought 60 new SWAT helmets, right, for the SWAT team mm -hmm. right they they bought body cameras for all the officers now now what kind of corresponding investments have we done for our children and our children I, I can't name any you know we had to go and beg for two hundred thousand dollars right to to buy bus passes right that that wasn't in the budget right but yet the police department every toy every gadget you can think of they use our tax dollars to buy. And, you know, one of the things we do, as you alluded to here in the beginning of what you said, Kim, um, is that we, we look at schools and say have a decreased enrollment. And let's say they have 300, 500 students in a place that could fit 1,000 or whatever that number might be. But you're allowed to have smaller class sizes and teachers actually taking care of kids and learning going on. But, and they use the infrastructure uh, in many ways, Luke, as the argument against keeping these schools open. But supposing you actually implemented community schooling that said, okay, these buildings are not just schools. They become the rec center after school. They become the place where people can have meetings for communities at night where you can have adult learning in the evening and leave the small school alive. I mean, there are ways to do this in ways I think we're not exploring that are creative in its approach as opposed to kind of the, the same. Big school building, 300 students, too much money, close it down. Yeah, I think that um, the school system maybe looks at this from, from the lens of 
um, if if people aren't going to a certain school or choosing because they have school choice in the in the in the school system essentially, then that means that school's not working and we need to look look someplace else. But Kim brings up a good point. I mean, rich rich people pay tons of money to send their kids to school so they can have a small class size. So if if that if that is an option for folks. Um, why would we want to um, target those schools for closure? Maybe we should look at uh, a different alternative. I mean, I, let's go to the phones here. I mean, my kids went to a mixture of public and private schools growing up, my older daughters, and my youngest daughter went to all pro- public schools growing up. Uh, but they, but in those, it, it, but the ones in private schools, it was just what you said. I mean, you go to, you, you go to those private schools and there are 20 kids in a class. Mm-hmm. And people pay 50,000 bucks a year to put their kids in a place that has 20 kids to a class. So 410-319-8888 is the number here. Your thoughts and ideas, let us go to Louise, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Louise, good morning. I just wanted to say that there's, um, just announced that there's going to be a march or a rally on March 4th, which is this Saturday at 10 a.m. at Rashfield Inner Harbor. So I wanted to put that out there. What's the rally? What is it? It's a a rally um, to um, basically... Stop the Budget Gap. It's a rally by, um, sponsored by B, um, which is the Baltimoreans for um, Educational Equity. Oh, yeah, right. And um, so, um, yeah, they're, they're sponsoring a rally um, for the, to stop the budget or to, you know, fix the budget gap. And your, your group, B, is, is made up of parents and teachers, I take it, right? Right, but it's not my group. I just, I okay. just know about the rally. So, um, <laughs> okay. I don't want to get that straight, but I just wanted to um, also say that I don't know um, why we keep falling for this bamboozle with the, with the, that our institutions, our public institutions are being purposely undermined so that, you know, they could be privatized. And that's with the charter schools, that's with the police department. Police department is purposely undermining our safety so that they can get more money, and they can continue to school the prison pipeline. You're right; it's connected. They're undermining our schools, and they're increasing um, the the police budget and the prison budget, and that and that's that that all runs in together. So um, I just wanted to say that, and I also wanted to say that I was there when Mayor Pugh. Um, said she was going to make an announcement right. at the rally, and she didn't. We have to hold our politicians accountable. She should be held accountable for that. Why isn't she making an announcement? What's the holdup? You know, this is ridiculous. We, we okay. talked about I know I appreciate the call. We talked about before we went on the air um, about, the, yeah, about, the, about why the mayor did not um, make the announcement she was going to make about what she, what she was going to do about city schools. Um, and I think that... Um, uh, it's something we should tackle. Lawrence me Cody, come to you for a moment. There's a, uh, I'm trying to read this tweet that just came in. <clears throat> I lost, but I'll pick it up. It's a tweet about you that came back to us about um, this. Keep this brilliant young man on the air. It must be. I think they talked about you. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, uh, but but uh, respond to some of these. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk actually something Luke said earlier, and folks have been bringing up about the connection um, between the police and schools, and also the connection between race and class. I think that there obviously is a connection between race and class and it's somewhat complicated. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it in terms of uh, people's wants and needs, politics responds to people's wants and needs and they have economic wants and needs. But if you look consistently at black scholars from W.E.B. Du Bois all the way up to contemporary schools of scholarship, such as folks like Frank Wilderson, uh, UC Irvine, folks is what they want, the future they envision, comes from their culture, comes from their race, comes from what they want their lives to be. And I think that we're coming into a problem because folks are envisioning a policing system and a schooling system that reflects what they want in terms of culture and the future, and that's problematic. So, for example, new schools. We have all this money in school construction. This idea of these glittering new schools it makes people feel good. It gives people pleasure. What is the learning that's happening in these new schools? Who are these new schools for? We have scholarship coming out of D.C. and other cities that talk about new schools being linked to more of a real estate strategy, more of a gentrification strategy than an educational strategy. So we have littering new schools that the people who live in those neighborhoods won't test into, won't be able to get access to. And it reflects people's desire to have this vision of education where somehow the technology of the school 
comes before the pedagogy and the culture of how you relate to the student. A similar thing is happening with policing, where you have this vision of police that are friendly and in your neighborhood and helping you out if you get mugged and things like that. That's just not the objective reality for most people of color. Community policing has been so broadly interpreted that when you get federal grants for community policing in the past, you could use those on SWAT teams because those are policed in the community dealing with crime, right? If cops aren't accountable for the bad things they do, I'm not sure I want a ton more of them in my community, right? But all of these questions get sidetracked because there are these dominant visions of what we think the institution should be, what we hope they should be, that reflect a particular dominant culture, a particular dominant vision of what the institution is and what it's becoming in the future. And we have to understand that race as well as class are critical factors that determine how people interpret what they want these institutions to be. You know, you have a fourth chair over there, and it would be wonderful to have the three of us and Dr. Santalisis in that chair one day and Kevin Davis in there the next day. And let's have the got dialogue with them in the room. Um, you know, Lawrence brings up some national issues um, around new school buildings. We here in Baltimore, at least I have, made every attempt to be involved in the design and, and the planning of the new schools, especially in the northwest part of town where I live. And so I, I am, am acutely aware that if we don't design the building to you know engage our children and to accomplish what we want to accomplish in their educational career, um, then, then it's just a big brick thing. Um, and so we spent a lot of time engaging in those kinds of conversations. And I hope others across the city have done the same. And you, I mean, I know your light work is at School 64. Mm-hmm. Yes, Elementary. Liberty Elementary. Let's, but Calvin Rodwell, which is nine blocks down yes, the road, right. um, is on the school board's agenda tonight, which is... Um, close, a, right? But no, it, 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 at first we were just going to renovate the building and put an addition on. And now with the closures of Grove Park Elementary, um, we're now going to, they're, they're recommending tonight that the whole building be torn down and that a whole new structure be built. Um, so I'm interested in that presentation tonight. What does that mean? And how are we going to accommodate the, the, the now 900 plus students that they're anticipating? That could come to? To Calvin Rodwell. 410-319-8888. So much to talk about here. Let's go to, uh, let's go through this. Uh, Leo, you're on the air. You've been holding on a while. Yes. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. How are you? And good morning to all of you. Good morning, uh, good morning Leo. It, it, it is clear to me that our children are under attack by people who should know better but who don't give a damn about our children. <laughs> I mean, where does the Greater Baltimore Committee stand on these issues and the Baltimore Development Corporation? They closed Langston Hughes, what, two years ago, excellent school. Uh, they're closing or threatening to close Renaissance Academy, which should not be the case. We've got a $130 million deficit, which requires, it seems to me, a special prosecutor, because apparently there's malfeasance in office with respect to mismanagement and or theft of public money. Nobody... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, nobody can account for where we are and why we're there. And that's my great concern. I heard you talk about the gentrification strategy as relates to cool, to school construction, and you're exactly right. And who threaded the needle with big business uh, and billionaire developers to make that happen? Stephanie Rawlins-Blake. We've got people... Bernard Jack Young is an old-timer, professional politician, Mary Pat Clark, Sharon Green-Middleton, professional politicians. This is happening on your watch. What are we going to do to answer the questions that are clearly apparent as to why our schools are, and our children are being attacked? Laying off a 1,000 people is clearly unacceptable as a solution. Maybe we can get 50 or 60 uh, million dollars out of the Greater Baltimore Committee. What do you think? Well, I mean, first, what do you think? I, I just think it, it's a travesty that we're being victimized in the way that we are, 
and nobody's being held accountable. We need a special grand jury investigation. Well, I I hear you, Leo. I, I, okay, I, I, I'm you know I'm not. I, let me just turn to you real quick, Luke, and then go around the room very fast. We have a lot of callers trying to get as many as we can in the next 15 minutes. Um, but, um, I mean, I've covered this a lot, what's going on with the education system. And I, I mean, I've seen no evidence of people stealing money, malfeasance in the, the thing in terms of money. I think there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there, you can look at the stats and see what happened to the money. You can see a lot of it is because how, the, the, the la- how money has gone down, what costs have gone up. Mm-hmm. And and because we're not investing our we're not investing in our schools or our children, mm-hmm. so I mean, you know I think there's I mean, but a lot of people think that there's this thing out there where people are actually stealing money inside the school system, yeah. running off so, with it. Right. So I mean, there have been some examples over time where where money was was misused, but um, when you look at this at this deficit, we're talking about structural issues that have caused this deficit. Uh, one is as there's a loss in student enrollment, which leads to less state aid. Two, we have all these tax breaks that we give out to um, the businesses in Baltimore, um, which means we, which means they they are them worth more as they as they're built up. We get less state aid, and they don't kick in the money necessarily to right. the state to the city budget to to fund. To fund it. Three, we do have some high costs in terms of teacher pay, in terms of pensions and health care, which do add up over time. And if you're not getting the same aid uh, because you have fewer students or more wealth on paper, then you can't cover those costs. So um, as you referenced, there was a consultant that did a study uh, for the General Assembly about, about how much money Baltimore should be getting based on its level of poverty. And they said it should be $387 million more a year, which would more than cover the, uh, the deficit. They also said, and this is why it's going to have a hard time passing, that Montgomery County should have about $400 million less, and four counties on the eastern shore should have no state aid at all because they're wealthy enough. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of doubts whether that Kerwin Commission study will get passed the way the consultant recommended, because I think it's going to be a political uh, fight in the General Assembly. And if you talk to folks in Montgomery County, which I don't want to get stuck on right now, they will say, as they said in their show the other day, we have 3,000 new students every year, which is more elementary schools have to be built every year, and the majority of those children do not speak English. Right. Yeah. The, the consultant, I think, would say that they're also twice as rich as any other jurisdiction. They're the biggest, richest jurisdiction in the state. They don't need as much help. But uh, but you're right. They, isn't, every human has their and struggles. Sen- and senators, all, all places have their struggles. the county budget yeah. that they put out goes to schools. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Kerwin study is supposed to come up with a new formula. So that that is the thing that is three years down the road that um, the the new dialogue um, around our deficit is we need a fix for the next three years until the new formula kicks in. And so while they have delineated some recommendations, anything that happens is going to have to be based on changing the formula. Yeah. Um, If I can tag in briefly. Go ahead. The conversation about the Greater Baltimore Committee and the Baltimore Development Corporation I think is interesting because – because we have more wealth, in, at least nominally, in these industries downtown, the state says, oh, you should be able to pay more for your schools. Of course, our wealth is produced through these massive tax cuts, the most obvious of which being this massive TIF that we just gave to a now somewhat struggling Under Armour. So I, I want to get back to this idea of connection. We in Baltimore have normalized an economic development strategy, which has been produced on the backs of poor people, especially poor black folks. Imagine if we took that TIF, that amount of money, and used it for what we're supposed to do, which is to invest money into neighborhoods that otherwise have a hard time attracting investment. That money is more likely to circulate around the community as opposed to being extracted from the community, more likely to produce homeowners in middle-class black Baltimore and middle-class white Baltimore, and that's how you increase your tax base, not this mystical unicorn of the white Under Armour worker who's going to buy a million-dollar home. And so I really think we need to have a more calm complex understanding of the interrelations between our economic development strategy, our education strategy, and our policing strategy, because at every level, you know, if evidence-based policy were so great, then the report would have came out and says, oh, you need 400 more million, bet. That's not how things work. We have entrenched interests and entrenched beliefs. People in Annapolis believe Baltimore is a black hole. So all the money that goes there magically disappears. That's a racialized belief. And so we need to work on understanding the legitimate politics that go into how these decisions get made. Because unfortunately, I think we can go down a rabbit hole of, oh, it's just mismanagement. Oh, it's just whatever. And we're missing the totality of the picture. 
agree. Let us go back yeah. to the phones. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Did you want to? Say? Oh, I would just argue if you if you hear some of uh, the if you compare school administrators from around the state, I think that um, the administration uh, budgets of of Centr- of North Avenue are not more bloated than. Uh, than the other jurisdictions, so it's um, you know that is I think kind of an urban legend or a old uh, wives' tale or what, what are those? What right, are those, uh, it's important to say. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. David, you've been holding on a while. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi, David. You there? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? We can. We got you. You're on the air. Okay, great. Uh, I'll make it real quick. I've been listening to a lot of the comments. Uh, I'm almost sixty, and when I came through school, they had the uh, summer jobs program. Uh, young people in school, they could either work for city government or uh, uh, parks and recreation. Some of that budget money that they're talking about, that around should be placed back into those type of programs. Uh, the reason being is it gives our young people uh, a lot of different things going on. It teaches them how to come into an adult world. It teaches them uh, how to be able to learn how to work and work with others. Uh, the other thing, I'm calling you from Georgia, mm-hmm. and what they just started in Georgia this year, it was an industrialist, and the program is called the German Apprenticeship Program. And what they're doing is they're taking uh, middle school students, and they're putting them on the job, giving them uh, industrial training. They're going uh, five days a week. They're also going to um, junior colleges. When they get out for four years, once they come out, they'll have an associate's <coughs> degree. They'll also have uh, an in international industrial um, uh, technician certificate where they can work anywhere in the world. They'll be making $14 an hour. Uh, when they go on board with anywhere, they'll be making $40,000 coming out the door in a year. The governor has already signed off on it here. Um, what I get, what our young people need, is an opportunity to be able to develop uh, our whole tech, our whole culture is changing to technology. So this will give our young people an opportunity not only to get into the arena, but as young people, they absorb so much more. So the knowledge base that they'll have and where they'll be able to go and stay 20 years, they're coming out when they're 20, when they're 40, is just unlimited. So I would hope that. Uh, you know, we could use that. But what I want to say before leaving is the things that you guys are talking about there in Baltimore, uh, it's all over our country. We're, we're all feeling it. Uh, I'm a parent. My children are grown. But I do look at our young people. They are our future. Um, and we, we need to give them the best opportunity we can. And I think we can do it. But we just have to get these people that, you know, want to say the only way to uh, run a program is through a the police program or, you know, uh, we have to have these things in places because the young people are out of control. They're not out of control. They just don't have uh, any type of motivation or to look at right. anything um, to, to motivate them to be better students. Thanks, Mark. David, thank you. I appreciate you listening to us from Georgia. And also that I'm going to look up this German apprenticeship uh, program that's happening in Georgia. I'm very curious about it. Yeah, when um, I was younger, uh, specifically in 1973, um, for the summer um, employment programs that the city had, I had an opportunity to work at NSA out at Fort Meade or um, Social Security Administration. The NSA opportunity required me to go and sit in a psychologist's office and get a psychological assessment performed. Um, I decided I didn't want to go that route, so I ended up working at Social Security Administration. Um, but though the variety of opportunities, as David was was discussing, is something that we need to encourage. You know, these youth work positions um, have been, in my opinion, um, a failure. Um, you know, we we put kids in in places with no thought, with no plan with no preconceived uh, idea about what you want them to gain from that 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 eight weeks it used to be and i think now it's down to five weeks uh, we really need a better strategy and I, and I think that the 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 what david was talking about i mean i think that this i hope i don't know where this is going to go but it would be good to see that this debate over the future of education maybe turns into 
restructuring our educational system. Yeah. And from, from what all of us – go ahead, Lawrence. Briefly, the one YouthWorks entity I've seen do some positive work is the Baltimore Algebra Project because they get YouthWorks folks to come mm-hmm. in and get brought into that program because they have a peer-to-peer model where it's other young folk teaching them. I've seen success with that. And when we talk about apprenticeships, I think that that's important. We need to fundamentally restructure education so that folks can do something like that during school time. And the school budget is going to stuff like that. And similarly, the folks getting paid to do the teaching are folks from community, folks who can build a connection with the kids. We're working to build a youth peer-to-peer incubator, which is basically designed to institutionalize this idea of young folks who have all type of expertise, graphic design, social media, music, art. We need to invest in that and turn them into the teachers because they're the ones who have the ability to connect to young people. But that assumption is so against Mm -hmm. so many layers of preconceived notions. We need to have a person with a, a master's from an Ivy League school and they're the best teachers. We have all these embedded assumptions about right. education, and that's why solutions like the one I'm presenting, real solutions, are not being centered. The accoutrements in the debate, I mean, I, their appendages of the debate, they're not centered into the debate, which is why I want to center them. Well, I, th- I think that would be an interesting debate to have. I mean, I, I, I don't think this, I, the whole question of peer-to-peer education, I think, is an important one to examine and bring to the fore, though I don't think it's the whole answer. I mean, there's a reason why societies have been structured throughout humankind where it's not just peer-to-peer, but elders to youth. People learn from one another for different reasons in different ways. And I think that peer-to-peer is part of it, but to say that peer-to-peer should be... Yeah, yeah. African people, the way we interpret that comes from our African tradition, which is exactly what you're talking about. But it's not just African. It's every tradition that's been like that on the planet. That, That has been the tradition from elder to youth has been our natural traditions, and we've lost that way. We, we have no... We've that's been torn asunder. Um, and, and it depends on what you're trying to teach, too. Right. You know, I mean, there are some things uh, about socialization that peers would be wonderful at helping kids understand. Mm-hmm. There are academic things that academicians ought to be the ones, you know. Yeah. And, and, and we need to, to, to create space for all of them. One that. sentence, one sentence, Mark. My argument is that we have a completely unbalanced diet, an unbalanced portfolio of educational strategies. There's no world in which peer-to-peer is going to completely get rid of Baltimore City College. What I'm saying is that in addition to things like Baltimore City College, we have completely ignored an entire sliver of solutions like peer-to-peer and not oh, centered them institutionally in terms of investment. So I'm talking about balance. We have an unbalanced system in the status quo. We have to get, we, uh, this, I wish we had another hour. But I want to apologize to Dwayne, Cynthia, Caroline, Clarence, Charlotte. We couldn't get to all of your calls. There's so many people calling in. That means we have to come back to the subject in the next uh, live show we do to get your all ideas in because people really want to wrestle with the future of education and our children, which I think is very critical. And we're in that place right now. Lawrence Grand Prix is Assistant Director of Research and Public Policy for Leaders of the Beautiful Struggle. Kim Schuhart, uh, activist in our community, former candidate for Baltimore City Council President. Luke Broadwater, reporter for the Baltimore Sun, uh, focuses on us local and state politics. And all of you, thank you for being part of the show today. On our way to break, speaking of school funding, uh, we are brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting over testing to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues facing Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association at their website, MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our, our intern is Michael Dixon from Morgan. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is, theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at SteinerShow.org. To podcast the Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at SteinerShow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA. 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.